Well, this morning begins our new series for 2011 as we look at questions asked and answered. And hopefully um, you understand that every Lord's Day we'll have not only the outline, but also have questions uh, behind uh, the notes. And whether on an individual basis, but hopefully on a group basis, you'll spend time looking at God's Word to reinforce the truths that we'll share each Lord's Day. Questions asked and answered, particularly um, as we look at the New Testament. In fact, the byline is understanding in the New Testament. But truthfully, if you're going to understand the New Testament fully, it helps to know a little bit about the Old Testament. So we're going to talk a little bit about that in terms of looking at the Bible as a whole. And if you've looked at the outline this morning, you see there's all kinds of things I've got in there. So I'm not sure how fast we'll go, but I promise some people I'll try not to talk too quickly as we think about sharing a lot of information. The one of the things is, as we look at the Bible, we don't want to look at it as a textbook, but as a book that will really transform who we are, particularly as we understand the author. But the entitled message for this first Sunday in our series, Questions Asked and Answered, and we encourage you throughout the series to ask questions, and we'll look at answering the best way as possible, is that we want to begin at the beginning. And so with that, I was thinking about probably the most uh, renowned national football head coach that ever uh, was in the NFL. And I remember uh, a story about him, and I guess his story is being played out now in an off-Broadway play or something like now, but Vince Lombardi. How many have ever heard of the name Vince Lombardi? Well, he uh, was a coach that kind of liked to win, if you ever uh, know anything about him, and he was rather frustrated when they would lose. And so one particular loss in which he felt they should not have lost, he, he called an extra practice and he called all his men out and he said, you know, we need to begin at the beginning because we're, we're not doing a few things right on the field. And so he went up to his players, gathered them all around, he said, men, this is a football. Now that's beginning at the beginning. Now I'm not sure if this actually happened, but as, if you're a basketball fan, you know that the Lakers have had some frustrating games recently. They had, had lost four in a row by double digits. And I'm not sure if Phil Jackson did this. It was quite possible he got all his players together and said, men, you know, we're not playing well, well, so we need to begin at the beginning. So men, this is a basketball. So as we think about understanding uh, God's message to us, we need to begin at the beginning. So I thought I'd begin with this very simple statement. People, this is a Bible. And so we're going to be talking about the Bible this morning and trying to get a a big understanding of it in terms of God's uh, message to us. And so if you have your outlines, we're going to we're going to I'm going to give some questions and give some answers before we begin this series um, in the New Testament. Hopefully, Lord's uh, next Lord's Day. And, and the first question you should ask about this is, what is the Bible? Uh, That's a pretty beginning question about the Bible. And and I would answer it as simply as possible this way. It is the book from God. Uh, What I'm attempting to do this morning is I'm going to give you some simple handles about this big subject, which is God's revelation to us. God's revelation to us has been recorded in a book. And this book is from God. Actually, the interesting word, the, the word for book is the word biblios, or the word from Bible, from which we get the word Bible, is the word biblios in the, in the Greek, and it simply means book. Sometimes, as in this particular uh, translation of the Bible, on uh, the front of it, before the word Bible, uh, is the word holy. And so sometimes we'll say, this is not only the Bible, this is the holy Bible. 
But we need to ask ourselves the question, what do we mean by that? Is it something that is some otherworldly? Like I was reading about this emperor from um, Ethiopia, and he really relished the Bible. It was King Menelik II. And he thought the Bible was so amazing that it would be cherished, almost worshipped, that whenever he would get sick, he would order one of his servants to come to bring him the Holy Bible, and he would tear out pages of it and actually eat it, believing because of the Bible's power it would cure him of his diseases. Now, that's not what I think God intended us to understand about this book, that it's holy to the point it can make a person who was sick well because of taking and eating of its contents. Really what it means here is that the word holy, we've already decided or proclaimed that the word Bible simply means book. It's a holy book. Holy being not only pure and special, but really set apart. It's set apart from all other books in that it has a unique author, and that author is who? God. There have been many books written, even in Solomon's day. In fact, it is an avalanche of books now being able to be written and published. But this is a unique book because this book is from God. So what is the Bible? It's a book from God. Secondly, well, how is it put together? And again, uh, we're just going to share some simple things this morning, not to look at the Bible as a textbook, but to give us an ability to, to be able to use it and to handle it for um, our benefit. Uh, it's divided in two parts, and that's not new to most of you. There is the first part and the second part, or there is the Old Testament, and then there's the what? New Testament. Well, what's the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament? Well, in some ways, the Old Testament and the New Testament, you could say, well, one's bigger than the other, and one was written before the other. And that's, we could probably figure that out ourselves. About two-thirds of the Bible is the Old Testament and one-third is the New Testament. But I want to give you another little simple handle. The Old Testament is promises made and the New Testament is promises kept. You see, we will understand the New Testament better as we understand all that God was saying before Jesus came. And really, we think all of life. Uh, life is divided B.C. and, and uh, A.D. You know, B.C. before Christ and A.D. means Latin phrase for the, in the year of our Lord or when the Lord was, was, was born. And, and as we think about that, that makes the division between basically the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament was written basically over a period of about 1,400 years, from 1,800 B.C. to about 400 uh, B.C. And then the New Testament was written in, about, in, about, for, in a period of about 100 years. But as we think about that, it was all leading up to that, that signature event of Jesus coming for us. Now, if you like Bible trivia, and I hate to use the word trivia related to the Bible, but it's interesting as we think of the, the book we have right now, the holy book, the separate book. It, it's divided not only in two parts, but in the individual parts, there are other separate parts. There are 66 individual books within the Bible, 39 in the Old Testament and 27 in the New Testament. Now, if you ever try to read through the Bible, uh, just starting with the beginning and ending at the end, you'll find out it's a little confusing at times because it's not written in chronological order. Particularly the Old Testament, it's written more in literary order. You have the law, then you have the historical narratives, and then you have the poetic sections, and then you have the prophetic section. And, and so it's not necessarily chronological. Some parts of it are, but it's written more like you'd go to a library. I mean, the books in the library aren't written chronologically, right? You go in the poetry section or the autobiographies, the biographies, and, and that's really how it's been brought to us in terms of how we have it today. 
Well, there are 39 books, 27 books in the New Testament. And, and if you were to break that up a little bit more, you'd find out that there are also chapters. There's 1,189 chapters in the Bible. Now, the interesting thing about that is we need to understand that they were not given to us originally that way. That's a, kind of a recent phenomenon. It was basically you would get a book and it was just the book. It was the letter. It was the piece. It was about 1200 uh, um, A.D. in which we had the sections of the Bible divided in chapters. It wasn't a little bit later on to where we saw where the numbers are. You know, you know what the, the numbers in your Bibles are called what? There's numbers or yeah, the chapters and then other little numbers are the what? The verses. That really didn't come on the scene until 1551. And again, the reason, and, and, and so you need to understand the chapter divisions and, well, as the verse uh, uh, distinctions are ne- not necessarily inspired by how they were divided, but it just gives us an ability to, to find a section in a particular book or letter um, that we want to go back to and say, okay, that's where it was, and we can use it as a reference point. The message was given to us for the purpose of us understanding it. And uh, some of the things we've done to make it more user-friendly happen after the fact. One of the things that we need to understand about the New Testament, and this is significant as it relates to uh, understanding how the Bible is put together, is that the New Testament brings great value to the Old Testament because there are three, at least 300 quotations, direct quotations in the New Testament to the Old Testament. And then if you were to add to that, there's probably 4,000 allusions to the Old Testament where they make reference to it. So the New Testament places high value to that section, that larger section uh, called the Old Testament. One other freebie, as you, as you read through the Bible, as you spend time in it, if you get frustrated a little bit with the Old Testament, you need to understand the reason why. Because number one, it was written over such a long period of time. And whenever you read something, you want, it's so helpful to know the author, the, the, the times of the, of the season in which it was written, uh, the particular culture or language it was written in, who it was written to. And it's a little bit more complicated because the New Testament is basically one generation and the Old Testament is multiple generations. But being that as it may, we need to understand that it is all given to us by God. So what is the Bible? It's a book. It's a book separated from any other book because the author is God. How 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 have we received it? It's got two parts, promises uh, made and promises kept, the Old and the New Testament. Thirdly, well, who wrote it? We already made reference to that, but I think we need to understand in terms of the process that all of a sudden it just get being thrown down from heaven and the words were magically uh, uh, arrive on a page. No, God used human authors. And you could put it this way. God the Holy Spirit directed... The word inspired, or you've heard that uh, reference of people being inspired to write a song or to write a poem, whatever it might be. In the New Testament, particularly the word referencing inspired has the idea of God breathing. It, it comes from, the origin is from God. And so when we say something is inspired in, a, in the biblical sense, we're not just saying someone's you know, light bulb went on. I had an inspiration and I'm going to do this or do that. that. That might be a prompting. That might be something that, that, that popped in your mind. But an inspiration from God is something that God breathes into us, directs us specifically. And that's why I would never reference to what I did as being inspired because it would be something that I would say that God directly did. But anyway, God the Holy Spirit inspired or directed men to perfectly pin His truth using their particular personality, culture, and language. 
The very details and exact words from God were perfectly recorded for us in Scripture. Now, in Proverbs chapter 30, verses 5 and 6, we have a statement about how important words are to God. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in Him. Do not add to His words, lest they rebuke you and you be found a liar. Now, when we have conversations with people, there are many times we might have, have to have the, the experience of saying, well, I, I misspoke. I didn't really mean to say it that way. I, I, let, me, let me rephrase it. Well, when God speaks, He doesn't stutter. He doesn't stumble. And when He inspired the authors of Scripture, they said exactly what He wanted to say. He, he said it through their cultural background, through the personality, through the times of that day. But He superintended upon them to say and communicate exactly what needed to be said. Now, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, it gives us an idea how that happened. And 2 Peter says this, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture... Now, many times when we hear the word prophecy, we're thinking about someone telling the future, right? He's being prophetic. I'm speaking at this point in time, and I'm going to tell you what's going to happen in the future. Prophecy was much broader in terms of how they used that word. It was anything spoken from God. You could, you could foretell or you could foretell from God. No prophecy or no communication of Scripture is of any private interpretation. Now, the word interpretation really there isn't simply understanding what is being written or said. It really has is of no private origin. It's not something that came from the person himself. There was a divine origin. And how did that happen? Verse 21. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And so when we say people were, men were inspired to write the Scripture, they were directed or they were moved by God to communicate exactly what He wanted them to say. Actually, the word move is an interesting word in the original language. It has the idea of the wind blowing in the sail of a boat, moving it from one point to the next. So what do we need to understand about the book beginning at the beginning? The book, the Bible, is a book from God. It's divided in two parts. The old and new, promises made, promises kept. Thirdly, it's written by men that God directly used to write exactly what He wanted them to, to, uh, to record for us. Thirdly, uh, and, and fourthly, and this is probably a critical question for us and maybe the people who know us. Well, why should you believe it? Why should I believe what, what you just spent some time communicating to me, that this is a book from God? I mean, isn't that just beyond, I don't know, I mean, really? I mean, this book's from God and... I mean, why should we believe that? And for me today, that, that's, that's the point of contention. You're, you're dreaming this all up. It's just something, it's a figment of not only your imagination, but for people who believe lies down through the years. Well, let me give you three, and then at the end, kind of a fourth reason. And there are volumes of books that will give a lot more backstory to this. But let's, let's begin with a very simple idea. Number one is, the Bible claims to be from God. Or to put it another way, it claims divine authority. At least 4,000 times in the Old Testament, it makes statements like, Thus saith the Lord. Okay? The only time I would ever say that is if I was reading the Bible. When I'm explaining or trying to apply it or give background to it, I'm not saying you know, God is speak, using my mouth to speak His exact words. But when the Bible was written, and it, as we read it, it makes very definitive statements that it's inspired, that God is speaking. Now, that might seem to be a, a simple point, but there's so many books that have been written that don't make that claim. In fact, there are very, 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 very few books 
anywhere that say God is speaking directly in those pages. So number one, it claims to be the Word of God. And, and so the simple point there, if it doesn't claim to it, why would we make, it, make that claim? Secondly, it's miraculously unique. And, and to me, the first time I read, heard this, it really made sense to me and became more convincing to me that this, this book was more than just a book. It was a book from God. Look at it. Is there any book like this? It was written over 1,500 years in three different languages, and you could add this, on three different continents from people of all walks of life with a singularly unified message. Now, can you, can you give us any book in all of history that compares to that? I dare say if I were to give you a subject, uh, take a non-controversial subject like politics, Okay, or uh, or anything, all right. And I had you all write, you know, about politics. Would we have a singularly unified message, even though we all speak the same language, we all live basically in the same place, we all have the a similar culture, and, and yet we couldn't agree amongst ourselves about many things politically. And, and we could we could even talk the object of food. I don't care what it is, we would have a hard time having a, a singularly unified message. But you take what's in the Bible. 66 books written over all those periods of time, all those different languages, all those different locations, all walks of life. Have you ever looked at who God drew into that responsibility of speaking his words? Now, now some were, you know, kind of the elevated crew. They were the kings, but the others were peasants. You had some that were shepherds. You had some that were extremely poor and others that were extremely rich. Some were well-educated, some were hardly educated at all. And yet God used them to speak directly the Word of God over a long period of time with a miraculously, miraculously unified message, non-contradictory. And the only way you could explain that, it's a miracle. It's from God. Third reason. The amazing hundreds of fulfilled prophecies. Now, now I'm using the word prophecy and things that were predicted in the past that came true in the present or in the future to come, and, and particularly the ones that have already been fulfilled, how do you explain that? What's the probability that happened by chance? And we've talked about that in numerous ways in terms of you look at the prophecies, particularly concerning the, the person of Christ. You take just 8 to 10 of the, the major prophecies concerning Jesus, and they've done this. Peter Stoner did a mathematical analysis of those prophecies coming to, to pass by chance. And the whole idea is kind of, it, it's, it's 1 to the 10 to the 17th power, now, most of us, we don't know what 1 to the 10 to the 17th power is. So what, what does that look like? Well, it looks like filling the, the state of Texas with silver dollars, two feet deep, mixing them all up. But before you mix them up, you take one of the dollars and you put a, a mark on it. And then, then after you mix them all up, you blindfold a man and say, you got one chance to win the lottery. <laughs> you have one chance to pick those 1 to 10 to the 17th power silver dollars that fill up the whole state of Texas two feet deep. And that's the chance that just 8 to 10 of the prophecies concerning Jesus came to pa- pass by accident. So next time someone asks you, uh, why do you believe the Bible? You know, don't say because Pastor Mike told you to re- believe the Bible. You know, say, well, let me give you three reasons. Number one, it claims to be from God. It claims to be inspired over, o- over 4,000 times in the Old, Old Testament. Thus saith the Lord. Number two is it's, it's miraculous. I mean, it's so unified you can't explain it in any other ways than that it had to be something it was a miracle or it was God. It was written over 1,500 years, three different languages, three different continents, 
40 different authors, over 40 different authors from all walks of life, and yet there's, there's the non-contradictory, simplified, unified message. How do you explain that? Thirdly, how about all the prophecies? But let me give you one other reason, and it's implied in the next question. What parts of the Old Testament did Jesus believe in? You know, one of the, one of probably the major reason why I believe the Old Testament is because Jesus believed in the Old Testament. Now, what parts did he believe in? Did, you know, just the easy parts? I mean, he might, he might believe in the Ten Commandments. You'd expect Jesus to believe in the Ten Commandments. What, what did he believe in? Now, here's where I ran out of time, so we're not going to be able to go to all these verses and look them up. They're all on the screen, but... Um, you know, let's, let's draw these out. Number one, he, he believed in Adam and Eve. He believed the beginning. Genesis chapters 1 and 2. In fact, he made, we'll look at that one. Look at, throw up Matthew 19, 4, 4 and 5 just for a moment. And he answered this reference to Jesus. And he said, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. You know, Jesus believes in the institution of marriage, but he, he, he believes that, that we didn't come here by accident. And so as people attack Genesis chapters 1 and 2 scientifically, and, and I believe that Genesis chapter 1 and 2 can be explained consistently scientifically, but if I were to tell you what's the major reason why I believe Genesis chapter 1 and 2 happened, it's because Jesus did. You know, we are not here by accident. We, we are not some amoeba that cl- crowd out of the eternal ooze, and now we're, we're all that we are. No, God at a point in time created us. And the Bible says He created us in His image. And, and we have a fundamental parentage and it's Adam and Eve it began with that couple that God created and why do I believe that well I believe because it's in the Bible why do I believe the Bible because number one it's claimed to be the Bible it claims to be divine authority number two it's it's supernaturally put together number three it's all the prophetic things that came true and fourthly and probably more importantly Jesus believes it and you could go on and on and on and I just throw a few things in your outline this morning he believed in Cain and Abel Genesis chapter four he believed number three Noah and the flood um Sometimes when people attack the flood, uh, let me tell you, Jesus believed in the flood. Why do I believe in the flood? Because Jesus believed in it. And you can look at Mount St. Helens. It didn't take a whole lot in terms of something happening dramatically, even during our lifetime, to do some things that people would say that would have to to happen over eons of time. And it happened almost instantaneously. God can create this entire universe with a word out of his mouth. And for a flood to happen is no big deal for God. Jesus believed in the flood. He believed in Abraham. He believed in Sodom and Gomorrah. He believed in Jonah and, and, and the great fish that he was in. Now throw up that one in number six, Jonah and the great fish. As you think about that, again, sometimes people will attack the Old Testament. Well, you can't really believe that. I mean, that's a fairy tale. That's a children's story. Well, Jesus alludes to it. Uh, look what he said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. He makes a statement. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He made reference to his death and resurrection to the story of Jonah. Now, can, can I explain how that happened with Jonah, that he was able to survive three days in the, in the belly of, probably wasn't a whale, some kind of great fish? I, there have been some similar experiences of some people being actually in fishes for extended periods of time. Is that a perfect illustration of Jonah? I don't know uh, about that. Uh, but I know that if, if God can, wants to hap- make it happen, he can make it happen. And that's the story of the Old Testament, that God is bigger than the things we can only understand naturally. So as we begin at the beginning, as we begin this new year looking at the Bible, and particularly the New Testament, we need to understand that there's a reason to believe. And we need to understand how we ought to approach it. But let me, let me throw out one other, thing, one other point right here. 
Sometimes when people look at the Bible and this, this opening sermon is to, to, to understand the Bible, hopefully, a little in a clearer way. They'll say, you know, there's, there's, two, there's, two, there's two gods in the Bible. You ever heard that? There's a God of the New Testament and there's a God of the what? Old Testament, you know. In the New Testament, it's a God of love and a, in the Old Testament, it's a God of anger and wrath and judgment. Well, that could be a sermon in itself talking about that. But just turn to one verse or look on the screen. Exodus 34, verse 6. And in it, God describes himself. It's a self-portrait in in the use of words. Exodus 34, 6, we have these statements. And the Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God. What is the Lord, the Lord God like? Merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. There isn't a different God in the Old Testament. There is a God of love in the New Testament. There's a God of mercy in the New Testament. And there's a God of love and mercy in the, in the, in the New and the Old as well. That's also true in terms of the wrath of God. There is wrath in the Old Testament. There is wrath in the New Testament. And if, if you're not sure about that, just read the end of the book. There's going to be a time of judgment. And God in His loving Loving kindness and grace and mercy is rescuing as many people as will come to him, but there's going to be judgment. God has always been who he is. He's not changing. Quickly, a couple other things. What is the purpose of the Bible? And, and this is crucial. If we're, if we're going to get the, the, the individual parts of the Bible, we, we better get the, indiv- the specific, the, the big picture. This is, a, this is a sentence I put together and hopefully it'll be helpful. The purpose is to reveal, and we could say reveal God. I'm, I'm making it reveal that God, but reveal God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's a book about God. But what does it say about God? It reveals that God, for his own glory and joy, has chosen to create and gather people to be in a joyful, loving relationship with him and his eternal kingdom, honoring and serving him forever. That's the purpose of the Bible. To break it down even a simpler sentence. The purpose of the Bible is to declare to us who God is and what God is doing. We already looked at how God described himself. He is loving, gracious, merciful, true. And we were going on that text. He's holy, righteous, and judging. That's who God is. But what he's doing is that he is creating and gathering a people to know him in a joyful, loving way. And to, to live under his guidance or rule. That's his eternal kingdom. And our purpose is to honor and serve him forever. That's not only the purpose of the Bible. That's the purpose of life. Uh, you know, to date me, I, you know, I was in high school in the 60s. And it was in the college, my college years were in the 70s. That was the period of time in which the, uh, the whole venue of, of, you know, who am I? You know, what is... What is the purpose of life? Where am I going? What, what's life all about? You know, it was all, all those major questions were shared all the time, everywhere. It didn't matter if you were in a math class, they'd be asking the question, who am I? Where am I going? What's the purpose of life? We would just, we would just talk about it endlessly. This is the purpose of life, to know God, the one who is glorious and almighty and all-powerful, who created everything, and he's gathering the people to be under his rule, under his kingship. And we are to honor and serve him forever. And if you don't get in on that, then you've missed the reason you're here. And you'll spend eternity apart from him. 
That's the purpose of the Bible. That's the purpose of what God has done throughout eternity past to eternity future. Well, what's the, if that's the purpose of the Bible, what's the message of the Bible? And here, here is where, we, again, we try to keep it simple. And, and hopefully at the end of this message, there can be a few sound bites you're going to remember. And, and this is one of the sound bites. The message of the Bible, and this is the Sunday school answer, is all about Jesus. But I want you to understand, it's not just the New Testament about Jesus. It's the Old Testament about Jesus as well. All the Bible is about Jesus. Because all the Bible is about God. And we fully know God completely when we understand Jesus. Jesus is Lord, God, and Savior. Now, why do I say that? Well, let me give you some, some emphasis about this. Number one, we know it's all about Jesus because it's illustrated in the words of Jesus about the Bible. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, Jesus said this, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. Now, where was the law or the prophets found? In the Old Testament. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. We are people of both sides of the book, the old and the new, because the old is simply promises made, and the new is promises kept. Do I have to start from the very beginning? You're not going to get a very good grade on this test at the end of this. You guys are going to listen to me. This is promises made and promises cat he's fulfilling all that so we we need to be able to see the old testament in the light of jesus all right look at luke chapter 24 luke chapter 24 verse 44 this is jesus giving a review um, to his students because they didn't quite get it the first time he said then i said to them this is jesus these are the words which i spoke to you while i was still with you that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of moses and the prophets and the psalms concerning who me he said, if you don't get this first question right, you're going to miss every other question. The first question is, what is the main message of the Old Testament? It's about Jesus. And he told that to his disciples. I want you to get it. All the parts of it. The law, the prophets, the writings, it's all about Jesus. Now, that's illustrated not only in the words of Jesus. He makes commentary on the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's also, if you look... Look into the New Testament, and this is sometimes harder to see, but it, is, it, it really begins to unfold what this is all about. It's also illustrated, for instance, in the appearances, particularly in, in the appearances of Jesus in the New Testament that you might not have seen the first time. And we won't go through these passages, but the first one, there's an experience of G, uh, Abraham, and there are three people that come to him, and one is an angelic uh, messenger from the Lord, and uh, the other two depart, and then there, it says, the angel of the Lord appeared to Abraham. That angel of the Lord, that messenger, was the messenger of the Lord, and it was the Lord himself. It's Jesus appearing to Abraham, the one who gets all the covenant promises of God, because Jesus was there. How about a more familiar story? How about Moses uh, appearing, uh, having God appear to him, God appeared to him in the fiery, what? The burning bush, the fiery bur- the burning bush. That was Jesus. Jesus appeared to him and spoke out unto him. Uh, how, about, how about this one? How about Daniel in the... Uh, in the fiery, uh, Daniel and his friends uh, in, the, in the fiery furnace. Remember they were in there and all of a sudden there was somebody else and who was that? It was Jesus. Um, actually, it's being, I've got Daniel, but he ought to be his, his, his friends in the, in the furnace. All right, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, so it's illustrating the appearances. So when you see God manifest himself in the Old Testament, that's really Jesus manifesting himself in the Old Testament. Number three, it's illustrated in, in, um, in types and what a type is in the Old Testament is something that, that pictures Jesus, 
by what happened in the, in the story of the Old Testament. For instance, the story of Isaac being offered up on the, uh, on the mountain as a sacrifice. Isaac is a type of Jesus because he was a willing sacrifice. Can you imagine that? Abraham, the story is told in which Abraham was to take his son. It's interesting, his, his only son. His son, his only son whom he loved. And isn't that a picture of God the Father with his son Jesus? He was to give his son, not only his son, his only son, his only son that he loved, to be an innocent, pure sacrifice on behalf of others. See, that's, that's the story of Jesus in the Old Testament. And so as we, as we understand the Bible, the Bible, as you start breaking down its complexity, the 1,189 chapters, the over 31,000 verses, you need to see the big picture before you get to the detail. It's all about God revealing that He's a God that wants to create and gather people to be in joyful, loving relationship to Him for His glory and for them to, to, to live with Him in His eternal kingdom under His rule, honoring and serving Him. And, and to get in on that, you need to understand the message is all about Jesus who's coming to provide the way for that to happen. Illustrating His words, illustrating His appearances, illustrating types, Illustrated in his titles, and this is where I'd like to spend more time, but we're not going to spend more time. Uh, it's interesting. Jesus has the same titles in the New Testament that, that God Almighty has in the Old Testament. And I only put four here. He's the first and he's the last. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning to the end. It also says in, in uh, Psalm 27, verse 1, and John 1, 9, that he is the light. In Isaiah 43, verse 3, and John 4, 42, he is the Savior. In Isaiah 42, 8, 1 Corinthians 2, 7, 8, he is the Lord. The look at those, those are great passages that really speak about Almighty God being the only God, being the only one who's the Alpha and the Omega, being the only one who's the Savior, being the only one who's the Light, being the only one who's the Lord, and yet Jesus has those titles as well. And how do we know that? Because the New Testament is the place where promises made are promises, what? Kept. Now, how, how do we put this all together in, in a summary form? What, what is the message of the old Bible, that, of the whole Bible that begins, in the New, that begins in the Old Testament? You can summarize it in four words. I've shared this to you probably a year ago. But number one, it all begins with creation, Genesis chapters 1 through 2. And, and really what that is, it's God's kingdom or God's relational rule revealed. You know, apart from God bringing that to our attention, we would we'd be just oblivious in terms of, well, what, what did... What is this all that we're seeing in, in this world? How, how does this all come to be? What's, what's supposed to happen? It begins at the beginning, and it's God's creation. It's God's relational rule revealed. Then something happens. And if the first part is Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the next is, is portrayed in one chapter, Genesis chapter 3. It's the fall, and it's God's relational rule rejected. When we, when we look at why is the world so messed up, because we messed it up, because we rebelled against God. And that's where suffering and pain and death has come. So it's God's relational rule rejected. Thirdly, it's redemption. And that's the rest of the book almost. The first two are found in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, creation. Chapter 3 is the fall. Chapter, Genesis chapter 4 through Revelation 20 is all about redemption. It's all about God bringing back a people to himself. It begins with the, prom- the covenant promises to Abraham and it continues on. But as we think about it, it's God rescuing a people. And it's culminating in Jesus going to the cross for us. It's his relational rule redeemed or bought back. And then the last couple chapters in the book, Revelation chapters 20 through 22, it's 
21 through 22, it's consummation. It's God's relational rule restored. And so as we see this big book, it has so many components to it, but it's really a pretty simple book. It's a book from God. It's divided in two parts, the old and the new. It's promises made and promises kept. It's written in an inspired way as God moves in the hearts of people to record the exact words concerning Jesus. There are reasons to believe it. There's reasons, number one, it claims to be from God. Number two, it's supernaturally put together. How do you explain that happened? The prophetic third of the prophetic things that were said come miraculously true and mathematically impossible that it happened to happen by chance. And it's believed by Jesus. It speaks about God from beginning to end as a God who is loving and merciful and compassionate, but also holy and pure. It's a book in which the purpose is clear. It's about God bringing people into relationship with him. The message is straightforward. It's about a singular person. It's about Jesus. And it can be understood by four words. It's about creation. It's about fall. It's about redemption. And it's about consummation. But I, I guess I want to leave you with this. The, the, the so what? The so what? How should that make a difference in our life? I don't think I shared with this you early. And sometimes these messages get turned around from the first service to the second service. But, you know, people, people have rejected the Bible down through the ages. Remember, some of you, if you took philosophy 101 in college or read any books like that, remember a, a man named Voltaire. Voltaire was a philosopher, a skeptic a couple hundred years ago. And he said, in a hundred years, he made a prophecy, the Bible will be a lost book. No one will ever read it. And most people can't remember Voltaire, but we still have the Bible around. And there are a variety of other people. The Soviet Union, they describe the Bible as a culmination, a culmination of just myth, myth, myths and books that people read religiously but don't make a difference in people's lives. But there are other people who have made comments. Immanuel Kant said this. He said, there is no other book that brings me as much consolation as, and hope as one line from the Bible. Daniel Webster said that this is a, this is a book in which all their books are incomparable to. Abraham Lincoln said this is God's greatest gift from God. Theodore Roosevelt said that it is better to know the Bible than to have a college education. But Jesus said this, and it's recorded to us in John chapter 5, Verse 39 and 40. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. This is a book about Jesus that brings people to understand God's plan for their life and to find a life. And Jesus, when he talks about about life, he's talking about it in both dimensions, both quantitative and qualitative. You know, I, I want to live long and I want to live well. And, and that's what Jesus said. And this, this long can be for eternity with him, eternal life in the presence of God. And quality, abundant life that's filled with what God wants us to experience, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control in the midst of a world gone wrong. The Word of God says so many things about itself. Just leaving you with this last one. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. As we go through this series, questions asked and answered, we, we, we want to go to this book because it is a book that gives us life and hope and direction. And more important than anything else, 
It brings us into the presence of the Savior who came for us. Let's pray. Father, we, we so often don't value that which you've given unto us. And that can be true in our own family and friendship circles, but it, it can be in the most simplest things that we take so much for granted that we never spend time with. And, and that's this love letter you've given us from the pens of people that you inspired. Father, we, we want to go to this book because... Not we're here to worship it or to to think it's going to cure our diseases because we eat its pages, but because it gives us a light to our path and it brings us to the person who is light and has life that can be imparted to us when we believe. Father, help us be a year in 2011 where we, we love your word to the point where we can love you more deeply and faithfully. Father, if there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know you in a personal way, might, might they make that step, admitting their need and turning from that which is wrong before you, believing that Jesus fully paid the penalty for their sin and rose again, and then making that commitment to follow Jesus as their Lord and their God and their Savior. And for us who has made that commitment, might we just live in a way that it shows in our life, and we pray this in Christ's name, amen. As we conclude with him this morning, we invite you, if, if you want to pray or talk with another, this is a great place to find out more about what it means to walk with Jesus and to know him. And so as we uh, sing at this time, why don't we stand as we sing about, oh, how he loves you and me.